0: Go to mindfulparentingcourse.com and join now before the doors close again. That's mindfulparentingcourse.com. I'll see you there. You're listening to the Mindful Mama Podcast, episode number 125. Today we're talking to Julie Lithcott hames about how to raise an adult. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have, and when you're thriving, when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate self-awareness in their daily lives and to take family and life to a new level of peace and cooperation. I've been practicing yoga and mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the mindful parenting course, and I'm the mom of two girls who challenge me every day to hone my craft. And that is Faux shoa sure true in the summer. Oh my goodness. So I'm so excited for you to hear this conversation with Julie Lithcott Haines, who wrote an amazing book called How to Raise an Adult. And it's like how to raise an adult rather than raising a child. And she comes from this amazing perspective as she was a dean of students at Stanford University and seeing these kids come in, freshmen in college, come in and be really unable to do a lot of different things and be overwhelmed by anxiety and things like that. So I can't wait for you to hear this. We talk about why we're over-parenting from love, right? And and other things as well. We talk about that ego, right? And we talk about chores, how, why chores are really great. This part is really wonderful. You'll love this part. And the importance, of course, of our own self-fulfillment. Someone really amazing asked her this question, why are you on the sidelines of another person's life? Cool, right? I can't wait for you to hear that part. So Julie Lithgottheims, her bio says that she believes in humans and is interested in what prevents humans from thriving. Her writing and talks currently focus on overparenting, racism, and hashtag adulting. So I can't wait for you to hear Julie. She's amazing. I'm currently working on my book. I'm still working away on my computer and it's also the summer. I got my kids home. All kinds of things are happening here. And I do have room, though, if you are interested for one-on-one coaching client. I have one space open. So if you're interested in that, you can go to mindfulmamamentor.com slash coaching and check it out. This is for you if you want guidance, that support, that shortcut. You need to make it happen, to make it happen so that you're grounded, you're thriving, you're handling this life with with ease. Doesn't that sound nice, right? It's possible, I promise. (laughs) So let's dive into this conversation, and here we go. Julie with hames Julie, thank you so much for coming on the Mindful Mama podcast.
1: Hunter, I'm honored. Thank you for having me. I love Love your book.
0: I love your book, "How to Raise an Adult." It's so much fun, and it's so eye-opening. And it's kind of—I feel like it's just what we need. So I'm wondering if you could tell the listener how you started to notice the problem as you see it in "How to Raise an Adult."
1: Yeah, I was the freshman dean at Stanford University from 2002 to 2012 and I held some other roles on campus prior to becoming freshman dean. So I was there from about 98 to 2012. And on our campus, we began noticing in the late 90s that there were some parents who didn't seem to want to let go of their college student. They seemed to feel that they had a role to play in the day-to-day management of life for their college student. And in the early days of this phenomenon, we now know as helicopter parenting, in the early days of it showing up at the college level, we laughed and giggled and like, what is wrong with these parents? (laughs) Like go home people. But then they grew in number every year. There were just a little bit more, you know, more and more parents attending their college students, you know, asking questions on their behalf, trying to solve problems for them. And as the numbers grew, I began to worry that the students were too accustomed to having that kind of help and involvement of parents and you know here I was the freshman Dean really caring about my students having agency in their lives and being able to make choices make decisions solve problems chart a course forward and I worried you know they don't seem to have those skills and they don't seem to want those skills and I thought well my goodness what's gonna become of them I don't care how impressive they are in an academic sense if they lack the wherewithal to conduct themselves as an adult human being in the world, that's not gonna be good for them. And it's not gonna be good for us as at a societal level. So I was really critical. I mean, I wanna be clear, this was not all students, just a growing number every year seemed to be reliant on parents to do what we'd previously thought college students could do for themselves. And then here's the rub, so I'm critical of this. I give speeches about this, you know, back in the, you know, before I wrote the book, I would, I would tell parents why this was bad. And then one day I came back home to my own house here in Silicon Valley. I had, my kids were young at the time. They were eight and 10 and I sat down for dinner and leaned over my 10 year old son's plate and cut his meat. <laughs> and that Hunter, as, <laughs> that was my aha moment. I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, Of course you can't let go of your 18-year-old if you've been holding on too tightly to your 17-year-old, to your 16-year-old, and so on all the way back. And that's when I realized, instead of fostering a continual dependence on us, we're actually supposed to be helping our kids become more and more independent over the years so that when it's time to leave our home for college or the workplace or the military or whatever, that they've got a sense of self, they can fend for themselves, they can stand on their own two feet. Not that they're gonna be perfect right out of the blocks, but gee, 18 used to mean something. It used to mean a sense of wherewithal and a sense of one's own obligation to look after oneself. So anyway, those were the two sort of intersecting vantage points. Dean concerned with other people's kids and then mom realizing, oh no, I'm doing it to my own kids.
0: Oh my gosh. I mean, you probably had that that whole fast forward thinking like my son is going to be one of these kids and really worrying about him. I mean, and I imagine you're where you live in Stanford and things like that. This is kind of uh, one of the areas of the country that is really heavy in the sort of like academic success arms race area.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yet I've been now out on the road with this book. I came out almost three years ago, and I've been on the road with it for two and a half years, and I'm going to communities all over America that are struggling with some kind of arms race. In some places, it's just like Silicon Valley, very, very concerted effort to get kids into the quote-unquote right schools by test prepping them up the wazoo and making sure they're doing all the sports and all the leadership and all the clubs. and, And so there are other communities that are less intense academically, but are still trying to manufacture their kids to be what the parent thinks the kid ought to be or look like in order to kind of be successful. And of course, the parent's ego is hugely wrapped up in this. And I know that's something that you and I'll probably talk a little bit more about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and this is why, you know, the listener, sometimes I wanted to share Julie's work with you because, you know, you might have a child who's small, who's two, who's three, who's five, whatever. And you're thinking, what do college students have to do with me? But this is what you're saying, Julie, is that this whole thing starts in the beginning it starts with us what i hear you pointing to is that this overparenting overdoing overprotecting it starts with us kind of i guess living and parenting from kind of a place of fear or fear and worry for our child is that the way
1: you see it i think it's three things i think yes it's fear and worry number 2 it's love we love our kids fiercely we would do anything for them and number 3 our own egos are very caught up in what we nowadays call parenting. It used to be child-rearing, but we've managed to put ourselves at the center of it, literally, and in terms of our lexicon, we've put ourselves at the center of this effort of raising children. So now we call it parenting. We have our own sense of self wrapped up in our children's accomplishments. Am I a good parent? As Jennifer Sr. has written in All Joy, No Fun, The Paradox of Modern Parenting, she said every single day, we find ourselves wondering, was I a good parent today? And we look to our kids' grades or you know, success on the playing field or the schools they've gotten into as evidence that we are worthy, that we are worthwhile, that we have done a good job. So I think it's the confluence of, of love, fear, and ego that's really gotten us into this conundrum. And the final thing I'll say here is it seems to work this kind of hovering style of parenting where we're involved in every decision, we're tracking every deadline, we know where they are at all times, we argue with their teachers and their coaches, like we're sort of their concierge, their helper, you know, we're constantly there. It it seems to work in that kids whose parents are always there, they don't skin their knee because their parent picks them up before they fall. And they they don't you know have hurt feelings because the parent is there to intervene before anyone's feelings get hurt. And they might get a better grade because the parent is arguing with the teacher and they might get more playing time or a better position on the team because the parent is right up in the face of the coach. It seems to work Parents are doing their kids' homework in a lot of communities these days to try to get the better grade. And when parents do homework, because parents are tend to be smarter, better educated, you know, they get the better grade. So it seems to work. What we only recently have begun to appreciate is that whatever short-term win the parent achieves for the child, there's this long-term cost to the child's sense of self, which basically never has a chance to properly develop because the parent is doing too much of the decision-making and problem-solving and acting for the kid. So the kid becomes chronologically adult, but they're psychologically unwell because they haven't even formed a psychological sense of self. They are existentially impotent, which is the term that I've coined. And that leads to higher rates of anxiety and depression. We are literally doing too much of the living of life for them. Therefore, we are depriving them of the chance to build a healthy self.
0: Wow. I want to tell you about a great podcast that you should check out, especially if you ever deal with any school system, which you probably do. It's called Understood Explains. I highly recommend you check it out. To listen to Understood Explains, just search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's it. Understood Explains.
2: Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Bree, we talk to a lot of moms.
3: Yeah, we sure do.
2: And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down.
3: Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it
0: I love the term you call this the checklisted childhood. I think that 's such a great term that really kind of sticks in my brain, but you really lay out in how to raise an adult, you really lay out some really powerful statistics and studies, so people are looking at this they 're looking at the over parenting the overstructure, and things like that, and they 're looking at the stress that kids are feeling and they're really seeing some of the results of this way of living of parenting. Can you share some of these statistics and studies that you found with us? Yeah. I
1: don't have my book on me. (laughs) I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, but in my book, I have some handy notes. Let me just see what I can pull from about the studies. Okay. So basically within the last 10 years or so, a number of studies have come out linking this overbearing overinvolved parenting style we we sort of shorthand call helicopter parenting with higher rates of anxiety in kids higher rates of depression in kids kids more likely to be medicated for anxiety or depression when they've had been subjected to helicopter parenting there's even a study linking less executive function in kids that have overinvolved parents now that sort of seems like this tautology because maybe we have to be over-involved because our kid has less executive function. And I think there's a chicken and egg problem here and we're not quite sure you know, what's causing or contributing to what. The other set of statistics I would quote are from the American College Health Association, which surveys college students every year and gets over 100,000 responses. And every year they're producing the results that show us that I think it's 46.5% of college students felt things were hopeless back in 2013 just less than half of all these college students surveyed felt things were hopeless which is a staggeringly depressing statistic and that number in 2013 of 46.5% it's worse in the recent in the 2017 studies i just pulled the 2013 for my book but the point is every year they do this this survey and the numbers keep getting worse the numbers for anxiety the numbers for depression you can read them from my book i don't want to make them yeah. up but yeah
0: yeah, I mean it's sad and staggering like I think of I think of my time in college and I think of like oh my gosh like that was this time of freedom that was this time of independence that was this time to pursue learning what I actually wanted to learn and to to think of these kids half of them feeling like things are hopeless is astounding like obviously I have a personal you know one person kind of viewpoint of things but it certainly seems like a huge change
1: it is and you know the the unwellness of our adolescent and young adult population is a topic at the top of mind for anyone working with these populations educators k through 12 educators at the college level mental health professionals you know everybody knows that these days a significant number of young people are presenting with some kind of mental health difficulty and people will say well we're just destigmatizing mental health issues. It's not that there's an increase in the population. I think that point of view has been pretty soundly rebuked. It's like, yeah, we have been destigmatizing mental health, so you can come forward and talk about it. But just regardless, more people seem to have these difficulties than ever before. And we've got to examine what is it about living here? What is it about being a child in our communities that is so damn stressful and anxiety-producing? You know, one of the things that I point to is we parents act as if every single moment of our child's life matters, meaning everything they do is of consequence. We think it's of consequence to their future, to the right college being available to them, the right career, whatever right means in our minds. So we act as if every day, Every piece of homework is essential to their future. Every quiz matters. Every goal on the playing field, every recital. We act as if everything they do is high stakes. In an environment like that, I mean, how's a kid supposed to feel? Imagine just take your adult life and apply that burden to it. If every single meeting, if every single conversation, every single thing you do in your working life mattered you know, for your future, it would just feel oppressive, I think. No let up. And they look into our eyes and they see that we are so stressed out about, oh no, they got a B or a C or whatever it is, or an A minus, you know, oh no, they see our fear about their outcomes and it stresses them out. And, you know, so that's one of the things I try to point to when I'm talking to audiences, like try to imagine what it is like to be a kid today who comes home and all they're asked is how much homework do you have? When are you going to do your homework? When are we going to do your homework? What happened on the science test? Every parent child conversation, you know, should not be this transactional academic stuff. We should be talking to our kids about, Hey kid, how's life? Tell me what's good in your life. We've got to show our kids that they matter to us as human beings you know, not that they matter to us as a function of their GPA. Mm,
0: amen. <laughs> amen, sister. Dr. Shivali Sabari said in a talk, I heard her say, "She, you know, we have to love our kids, yes, but love them more and care about them less. Yes. And I thought that was brilliant because it's almost like when our own fulfillment, our own stuff is all wrapped up and who they are and what they are, then that we never give them a chance to like make any mistakes and be a kid and be immature and be Bye. goof off. And, you know, it's like our expectations for our kids. And I teach mindful parenting. And so like, sometimes we, you know, we talk about like our expectations for our kids and how they're, in some ways they're, they're so much higher than they would be for any other adult even though they're by definition immature, you know, like we expect them to do the right thing and say the right thing every single time or else something horrible is going to happen. And yeah, I can see how this is, you know, how these things are linked, how one is leading to the other.
1: Let me go back to something you said earlier, because I just want to, I noted it in my brain. (laughs) You said that when you were in college, you appreciated the freedom Yeah, and your Use of the word freedom really stuck with me because as it happens right now, I'm working on my third book, which is a sequel to How to Raise an Adult aimed at young adults. Um, you. <laughs> we don't know what it's going to be called, but think of it as kind of how to be an adult or, you know, tips for adult, you know, I don't know, but something about for 20 and 30 somethings. I can't believe we have to tell 30 somethings how to adult, but that's where we are these days. And anyway, I put a survey out and to the world and have had hundreds of responses really trying to ask people what does it mean to be an adult how do you know if you are one what does it feel like what's good about being an adult if you don't feel like you're an adult but you're over 18 what are you kind of waiting to experience or feel or have happen, such that you will feel like an adult and this word freedom keeps coming up in the surveys mm-hmm. you know freedom from and freedom to freedom from someone else telling me what to do, someone else charting my path, you know, freedom to make my own choices, freedom to do whatever the hell I want, freedom to accept the consequences of my own actions. And there's this hunger from young adults to experience that freedom that I think maybe you and I maybe took for granted because it wasn't encroached upon when we were growing up nearly to the extent it is now. Wow.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They they need to have the freedom to, to make their own mistakes. And that freedom starts when we're little, when they're little, right? To give them more and more freedom and more and more responsibility as time goes on to see how they're actions affect others in the world and to be able to to make those mistakes and have those learning opportunities you talk in the book you have a wonderful section which i love about chores <laughs> chores and things kids should do and i wondered if you could talk a little bit more about this for the listener to tell us about some of the chores and some of the things kids can do and so to give you kind of a background for me my kids went to Montessori schools and I'm a founding board member of a public charter Montessori school in in, here in Delaware. Mm -hmm. And it's all about building that independence, building those skills so they can do it themselves. So I remember, you know, like drilling in these little, little hooks that were down real low (laughs) when my kids were little. So they could hang up their own jackets and putting that water pitcher down low so they could get their own glass of water and doing all these things so they could do it themselves. So I love and appreciate this. So something I take for granted, but tell the listener a little bit more about chores and what kids can do at different ages because we do things, I think, for them unconsciously now.
1: Well, there's so many things that are coming up for me. The first of which is I think we ought to pause right now and acknowledge to all the listeners that we're talking about a middle and upper middle class and wealthy family problem, Mm -hmm. right? In poor and working class families, you pitch in, you help you learn early on that it's going to take all of us to get the job done. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the folks who are not giving their kids chores anymore are the folks who can afford not to give their kids chores because they're, Hiring somebody to do the work around the house for them or, you know, they're, the parents are handling it, but just letting the kids focus on their own enrichment activities and so on. Okay. So let's just acknowledge that this problem generally that I'm talking about tends not to show up in poor and working class homes, but rather in homes where parents have disposable time and income such that they can just focus on all of this cultivation of their kids every moment. Now, chores, which I talk about in my TED Talk. Actually, if any of your listeners are TED Talk folks, check out my TED Talk because it's all about what matters most for our parenting is that we unconditionally love our kids and that we give them chores. All right, so (laughs) to the chores. Turns out there's this longitudinal study of humans that was conducted, the longest study of humans ever conducted, called the Harvard Grant Study, conducted over decades and decades and decades. And it yielded thousands of findings, and one of which was that those who were professionally successful had done chores as a child or had a part-time job in high school. And so when I talk to parents, I say, it's not Kumon, it's the vacuum, you know? It's like, you don't have to send them to math enrichment in order for them to be successful in life. You have to make them pick up the broom or take out the trash or do the dishes or do the laundry or all of these things. Why? Because doing chores builds a sense of obligation to something bigger than you, a sense of, you know, the unpleasant tasks have to be done, they might as well be done by me, a pitch in, roll up your sleeves mindset. And that's what gets you ahead in the workplace. The workplace isn't going to be full of loving parent-like creatures who are just delighted by your every move. Mm -hmm. The workplace is run by a boss who wants you to work hard, anticipate what the boss needs, be useful, pitch in, you know? And so turns out chores, doing chores builds a mindset that will yield the kinds of success we want for our kids when they leave our homes and go out into the working world. And what kinds of chores can they do? Oh my gosh. The list that I put in my book, I pulled from a parenting website and it breaks down the chores as young as age two and three. It's like two and three year olds, they can dust. You put a, give them a feather duster and tell them to walk around the living room or the whatever dusting, Mm -hmm. you know, they love it. They can sort laundry into colors, you know, the darker colors and the lighter colors and if you start young, they enjoy it. They love to be needed and useful. They love to help. Whereas if you try to start chores with a 10-year-old, they're going to be like, what? <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> and so there are things like, you know, kids as young as three and four can be taking their plate from the table to the sink or, you know, they can, it all depends on how high things are, but they can, as you said, you put the water pitcher in the bottom of the refrigerator As soon as a kid can open the fridge, they can start to be serving themselves, you know, orange juice and water and so on. Put the dishes in the bottom part of the cabinet. The kid can open the cabinet door and get dishes out. You know, we're sort of infantilizing them by cutting their meat too long or tying their shoes too long. You know, there are chores that are about helping out around the house. But then there's just the sort of personal care and grooming stuff that, kids need to be taking on for themselves from brushing teeth to bathing themselves, to picking out their own clothes, to, you know, tying their own shoes and, you know, waking themselves up. You know, there's so many parents who never expected their kids would wake themselves up. And then those kids become college students who don't know how to wake themselves up. And it's ridiculous. And then the parents feel like, well, I've got to call them every morning to make sure they're up for college. Oh my gosh.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And these kids come and they just don't feel they have any efficacy. They don't feel like they can handle life because they had never had a chance to.
1: They can't. Yeah. It does become this self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the parents are overhelping because they don't think the kids can. And they're probably right that the kids can't because they've never had the chance to try. And so you can't cold turkey. You can't just say to your kid, okay, we've done everything for you, but now we're abandoning you. Because they will be bewildered and helpless. You've got to, whatever stage your kid is, whether they're four or 12 or 18 or 25, you know, we're supposed to be teaching them skills. And there's this wonderful four step method for teaching kids skills. That I learned from my friend Stacy Ashland, who has two kids one with significant special needs, one developing typically. And she kind of boiled all the research down to this four step method that she uses to teach both kids. And the method is this whatever the skill, picture, teaching your kid to use the stove, teaching your kid to cross the street, teaching your kid to put their homework in their backpack. First you do it for them, then you do it with them, meaning you're alongside them, you're explaining it, you're doing it, they're watching. Three, you watch them do it, so now the roles are reversed. They're doing it, you know, but you're still there to offer guidance or feedback as needed. And then step four, they do it completely independently. This four-step method, first you do it for them, then you do it with them, then you watch them, then they can do it independently. That's how they learn new skills. And we're supposed to be teaching them everything so that they can ultimately fend for themselves one day.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In the mindful parenting class, I teach parents to discern when is something their problem and when is something their kid's problem. Right. Yes. And this is such a huge skill that we don't realize that we're jumping in to kind of solve all their problems. And one of the big things that comes up all the time is sibling conflicts. And so I had a client who was who was there and and one of the things she's like, Oh well, wow, this is their problem. I don't have to do anything anymore when she had been solving their problems for you know eight years. And so she just like, let them go. <laughs> And they were like it was ugly <laughs> and part of it was like well let's back up and teach them you know kind of come in and kind of teach them how to do it, how to resolve the problems, and then kind of you know that step, like watch them do it, and then let them do it independently, not just you know don 't listen to this podcast and say oh my god i 'm doing everything for my kid, and then just suddenly let go, yeah. take those intermediary steps they 're really important
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, and often with the sibling rivalry, which is an area I have no expertise in i 'm an only child myself for them i mean I grew up alone, I have half siblings but and my own two kids happen to get along very well, which is just the luck of, of the draw and the birth order. I think my my elder one was very welcoming of a younger sibling, and they just have had a great relationship. But I will say this: you know, I've heard a lot of parents, particularly older parents, have said, back in the day, Phil Donahue was saying, you know, he for those who don't know Phil Donahue, he was like the Oprah before Oprah, nowhere near as magnetic, but you know, talk show guy, and he would say to parents you're not responsible, you know, let the siblings work it out. And moms would go and shut themselves in their room while their kids fought, thinking I'm just supposed to be out of it. You know, in fact, I shouldn't be anywhere near because the kids are appealing for my attention by acting out like this. And what happened is a lot of kids ended up being abused, you know, like bigger kids were up on smaller kids. And so it's neglectful if we just turn our backs and let them beat Mm -hmm. each other, right? So we, there are moments when we do have to step in and blow whistles and say, this is unacceptable. We don't do this in our family, you know, but we mustn't treat everything as if it is that kind of, crisis level circumstance.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's the middle path. And so what I see you're doing with this book is like kind of bringing us back to the middle path where we've really kind of gotten way out of the way as far as too much, too much, you know, overdoing for our kids and, and also overstructured time. Like we are so busy. We give kids so much homework. Our expectations are so much and, and our lives are so busy. Well, hey there, Busy Mama. you talk, you have a chapter about unstructured time. And I just love this so much because I tr- really, really believe in this. So, you know, I think your, your chapter is like why we need unstructured time or something like that. And we talked to us a little bit about unstructured time versus structured time in childhood.
1: Yeah, so the people who study what's healthy for developing kids to experience, they say over and over again, So these are developmental psychologists, early childhood educators. They say that free play, playing freely, is an essential component of a child's upbringing, if they are to be healthy and well. We may think that free play is a waste of time, frivolous, not useful, not important, but we're entirely wrong. Playing freely gives kids the chance to process what they've learned, both in an academic cognitive sense and in a social emotional sense, playing with other children freely teaches them how to negotiate with other humans, how to solve problems, how to treat other people. They get the consequences of their actions pretty much handed to them by other kids, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And so free play turns out to be really important. And, the guru of play in our country is a man named Peter Gray, and he writes regularly, writes columns for Psychology Today and other things, and he says, hey, grownups, if you're wanting to figure out what free play is, if there's an adult present, that's not it, okay? Mm-hmm. They must be able to play outside of our watchful gaze and our intervention. Now, again, we're not supposed to you know, leave them alone when they're three and go to the store, But we can be in the next room. We can, you know, in other words, not a hovering presence, but we're keeping our ears open in case something sounds like it's going awry. You know, that's when we can kind of step in and make sure at a manner, at a level of safety, that everything's fine. So free play matters. Instead, we put them in what I call a cage of enrichment every single moment. Once they're in elementary school, certainly middle school. Every moment of the day is scheduled from school to all of the activities and the time set aside for homework and so on. They're no longer playing freely. In fact, free play at school is so encroached upon. How many schools have cut back on recess or they're offering recess, but they have burdened recess with 12 rules about what kids cannot do? And you have a zillion adults out there on the blacktop or on the field, you know telling them what they're not allowed to do. Well, I'm going to share an interesting story with you. There's a principal in New Zealand who said, wait a minute, this is crazy. Our playground has 12 or 15 do not do this rules posted. And he said, we're going to take away all those rules. And the only rule we're going to keep is you may not intentionally hurt somebody else. And you know what happened? So kids started climbing trees. They started climbing fences. Mm-hmm. and Here's the fascinating thing. Injuries went down and (laughs) bullying went down. It's sort of like this energy thing. Like when we're just oppressing our kids by pressing in on their lives, you know, they're going to act out somewhere. But when we step back a little bit, you know, and take some of the rules away, it gives them room to navigate and negotiate and try things and fall and fail, but get stronger. So there's a lovely, if people are interested in that story, if you Google New Zealand principle recess rules, something like that, you'll get it. There's a video about him, you know, it's like a newscast video about him and it's a fascinating story and it makes you wonder here in the US, what would it take for more leaders in the K through 12 arena to embrace that kind of approach to healthy development of kids.
0: Oh my god, I love that story Julie. I mean that that just jives so well. I mean, for me with my girls, I would let them climb whatever tree they wanted to climb. My youngest daughter, she could actually climb. She climbed the playground ladder before she could walk. She was, you know, about 11 months old or something. She climbed the playground ladder and she couldn't walk. or 10 months old. And so they've always been like climbing things and I would, you know, I'd kind of spot them underneath. (laughs) And if it got too high, I'd be like, I'm feeling really nervous about that one. But they learn to trust their bodies and they're so good. They know when it doesn't feel good to them, which is the most important thing that happens. And it makes other kids' parents really nervous, but I see my kid and I know that they know how to trust their body, which for me is, is so, so important. It used to drive me crazy. I would take them to the YMCA playground and they're so, they got so many rules. And I was watching, my kids are playing, I'm watching this preschool out there and there's this, uh, four-and-a-half-year-old or something who climbs up the spirally-climby thing backwards or something or from the ground. And the teacher goes, oh, no, 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 you can't do that until you're five. And I'm like, ah! He's obviously doing it. Like, he's obviously capable of doing it. Like, this is so ridiculous. It drives me bananas. So so thank you
1: so much for that story. To a a related issue, we can often be the recipients of judgment, scorn, scoffing by parents who think we're neglecting our kid by quote unquote, letting them, you know, climb this equipment. And, you know, we have to really kind of reclaim the narrative. You know, when people say, oh, I can't believe you let him ride his bike by himself. You know, I can't believe you let him go to the playground without you. You can say, I'm not just letting him, I want him or her to develop the independence and the skills that can only come if he's got a bit of distance from me, yes. you know? Yes. So we're not neglecting, we're actually teaching. We're actually giving our children the chance to experience the various things childhood offers so that they become stronger children and then stronger teenagers and then stronger adults. Yes. So by yes. stronger, I mean more confident, More skilled, more capable, you know, more responsible.
0: Yeah, and body, mind, and spirit, yeah, the whole package. Yes, yes, yes. So to do this, we've got some work to do on ourselves in some ways, right? And you talk about this beautifully in the end of your book. Like we are in a culture where we put so much pressure on, especially moms, but. But parents and caregivers. And we we put so much pressure on to, to make sure our kids are always always safe. We're always there. And those are all, you know, of course we want our kids safe and, and we want to have, have a presence and being there. But the the pressure we put on moms can be kind of crazy, like watching every single practice, doing every single thing. So talk to me and the listener a little bit about how. This, this idea of like getting our, why is it so important for us to be getting our fulfillment outside of parenting?
1: Well, I think it was Carl Jung who said, well, now I'm paraphrasing him horribly, but it's like the greatest harm to the child is the unlived life of the parent. Okay. And mm-hmm. I think he was focusing on a couple things, both when we live vicariously, you know, we haven't lived our lives in a way that feels fulfilling to us. So we want to live vicariously through our children. But when our own life is not full and rich of things that we enjoy, then the kid takes on the burden also of being our reason for existing. And we've got to back our neuroses, you know, our psychological impediments. We've got to back all that off of our kids. You know, there should be a nice boom here for therapists, working with parents <laughs> whose own self is, is unwell or not as well as it could be. You know, we've decided our kid is our project, is our pet, is our trophy. You know, look at my child, look what I've done. And that's just so unhealthy for them. They don't exist to shine light on us. You know, they are their own being. And we ought to delight in who they're becoming. And, you know, I, I talk about sandpapering the rough edges of my own children, which is for me, character, personality. You know, my job is to teach them how to work hard and go out in the world, be nice to other people so that they can be successful. I mean, that's it. And work hard and be kind. I mean, those are the two things I want them to leave home with. Maybe learn how to love yourself, too, you know, so you're not out in the world looking for love in in ways that are going to harm you. And so why? I'm really off track here.
0: (laughs) No, no. I mean, that's beautiful. I mean, that whole greatest harm to a child is the unfulfilled or whatever, unlived parent. I mean, to make our kids our project is, it seems like there is pressure on us to almost do that, right? Like when they're little, but we can see that, this is causing that harm. I, I, I talk about, and I think uh, Kathy Adams talks about this beautifully, like living what you want your kids to learn, right? And so being that example, that modeling, right? Like our kids are really not so great at doing what we say, but really wonderful at doing what we do. And so how can we model how to live a balanced life, how to live a fulfilling life?
1: Yeah. I mean, the best way we model it is to do it and live it. As I say in my book, i've got I quote a woman named Katherine Jacobson who works at the Lakeside School in the Seattle area, and she was on the sidelines of her kid's soccer game on a rainy day in Seattle, and it was cold and rainy and a little bit muddy. And she got on the phone, you know she's watching her own kid play soccer. She's on the phone with her own mother. and she's complaining to her mother about the circumstance. And her mother's like, "What's your problem? Look, like, why are you even there? You're miserable. Why are you on the sidelines of someone else's life? If you want to show your kids that athletics matter, go for a run and talk about it over dinner. You know, if you want to inspire your kids to be interested in hobbies and activities, go do something you love and share that with them in conversation, you know, and her own mother was just critical of this kind of sideline of someone else's life approach to parenting. And it was dead on. You know, the best way to role model a healthy, vibrant adult life for our kids is to lead one, to fill our lives with the richness of friendship, conversation, hobbies, work, you know, civic involvement, volunteers, and whatever makes, brings us joy and makes us feel we're contributing in some way to our community or to our families and so on, you know, to do those things and to let our kids see us doing those things. That's how they're gonna aspire to be that kind of adult.
0: Oh, yes. Amen. Yes, absolutely, Julia. I love that. I love that story. Why are you on the sidelines of another person's life? And that's a great question that we should maybe start to ask ourselves. Maybe an uncomfortable question to ask, but you know, where's your life in the picture? Where's your life? I guess the only thing, other thing I wanted to sort of ask you about is, and I, I think this is a, just sort of a helpful way of looking at things is just this idea that that parents consider this idea of opening our minds to what's possible for our children and, and sort of opening up their possibilities and opening our own minds to maybe possibilities of other colleges for parents who are caught in the sort of in the success trap and et cetera, and opening our minds to to giving our kids the opportunity to to make their own choices in their life. And I know that life is Very uncertain now. Jobs are very uncertain. All that stuff is very uncertain. And there's a lot of uncertainty we have to live with. But could you talk to that a little bit, Julie?
1: Yeah. We've been duped by US News and World Report into thinking that there are only 20 or 30 colleges that we can be proud to send our kids to in this country. And we're we're wrong. It they're wrong. There are so many, so many wonderful four-year college opportunities in this country beyond the US News top 30. And what really matters is that. You know, students go to a place where they feel they're going to be challenged, but also find community. And it's, it's really not about the brand name. It's about, can you study the things you're interested in? And you know, will you be mentored there? Will you have faculty who care about you take an interest in you? And often, you know, the faculty who have the time and inclination to care about undergraduate students are, are at small liberal arts colleges that most people haven't heard of or are at a community college. Very often the strongest teachers in our area are teaching at a community college. They're not doing the kind of research that would win them an appointment at a fabulous research university, but they're excellent teachers in the classroom. We often poo-poo community college or junior college as somehow less than and It's really kind of a different offering and one that can be quite strategically used if a family is struggling financially and can't afford the sticker price for a four-year. You know, A kid starting off at a community college and and spending two years there and doing well and then transferring is a very economical way to get a four-year degree. But let's also step further back and say not everyone has to go to college. I keep reading articles about how very many jobs in the skilled trades are going unfilled. They pay well, there are great benefits, but nobody's trained to do that work anymore because everyone's going to college now. And so we have, you know, openings for skilled trades that need to be filled. More and more kids ought to be looking at trade school. If their inclination is to do that kind of thing, let's not stigmatize it. Let's say, go for it, you know? Make yourself who you want to make yourself into. So there, there are a wider set of options beyond the four-year schools that are the biggest brand names that are on everybody's minds. There's simply really an infinite number of possibilities for, for a young person as they leave our homes and go out into the workplace or into higher education or into the military. There are just so many more options. And, And the minute we can appreciate that, we can relax a little bit and say, okay, you know, I don't have to get my kid into XYZ highly selective school. You know, that's not my job. My job is to prepare them to work hard, to persevere, you know, and to be kind to others, and those skills are what's going to make them successful wherever they go.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah, we gotta we gotta examine our own fear and ego in this in this whole process. So I imagine, Julie, that you you stopped cutting cutting your son's meat.
1: I after have that. <laughs> nineteen, and he just finished his freshman year at college. He's off at Reed College in Portland, Oregon, which is one of these small liberal arts colleges with really dedicated faculty that work them incredibly hard and he's getting a top notch education. He's learning to cook for himself. He's, you know, he's joining clubs. He's struggling in places and picking himself back up. He's thriving wildly in other ways. And as the former freshman Dean and me just looks upon him with joy and says, Oh my son you're doing it. You're you're learning how to be an adult and it's not easy and it's not pretty all the time but you know one of the things he said to me was I'm so excited to be working this summer. It's the first time in his life he's going to have a full-time summer job and he said I'm just so excited I can already sense that earning my own money and spending my own money on things is gonna feel really good. And my husband and I look at each other like, yep. And we smile at him and say, absolutely. And we're just kicking ourselves that we didn't force him to have that experience sooner. And why didn't we force him? Because we're upper middle class and we didn't quote unquote have to. And this is an example of how we sort of deprived our kid of the joy that comes from the hard work of working and earning one's own keep, You know, one's own way. That's an inevitability we all get to and instead of highly cultivating and enriching our kids high school lives having that summer job or having that part time job in high school can be one of the most you know foundational forming experiences of their lives
0: oh my gosh heck yes i mean i i worked at dunkin donuts as a teenager and yeah. and i bought this car that was like a 500 dollar car it was this 1982 subaru gl and man, did I love that car? I'm I so proud of that car. Oh my God. Even the rust spots, I spray painted over them with flowers. <laughs> oh my god. I,
1: and it was yours. Yeah, it's totally you mine. know, I worked great. as a bus girl at Perkins, which is a kind of a 24 hour restaurant in some parts of the country. And I bus tables and clean bathrooms. And I am so, so glad I did that work and had that job. It was just one summer. I came home smelling like fried food, you know, I came home tired, but I was earning that paycheck and it felt so good. And it also made me feel like, well, I don't want to be doing this kind of work forever. And so it made my educational pursuits all the more tangibly valuable. Like, okay, I'm trying to be better educated so that I can find work, you know, that allows me to do different things in order to earn a paycheck.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It makes it, it makes it very, very valuable for sure. Absolutely. Julie, this has been amazing. Where can people, obviously, I think everybody should certainly go check out how to read an adult. And Where can they find more about you and your work that you're doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I have a website, com. There's a hyphen in my last name in real life. There's no hyphen on the website. So, julielifcotthames.com. And I'm sure Hunter's got a we'll, we'll link up to it. Yeah. link to it rather than me spell it out. I'm on Twitter at Dean Julie as well as at Raise an Adult. I'm on Instagram at How to Raise an Adult at JLifcottHames at Real Americans Everywhere. That's the subject of my second book on race, Real American and then on facebook facebook julie Lifcott hames and how to raise an adult so i got a lot of social media going there's that ted talk i mentioned if you go into ted.com and type in my name my ted talk the harm of overparenting and the, the importance of chores will come up and yeah so those are those are ways in which folks can follow up absolutely and
0: we'll we'll link up to the ted talk and how to connect with julie at mindfulmamapodcast.com julie You know, I just want to say thank you. I think that this work that you have put out into the world is incredibly valuable, and it's at just the right time. You're a real powerful voice of reason. You're a voice that's balancing us and that's bringing us back down to earth and also opening us up up our eyes. And I think that your work will have ripple effects and resonate through many, many people. And so I want to thank you for for taking the time to write this book, to do the work and to share your voice with all of us. It really makes a big difference.
1: Well, I appreciate it. And the last thing I'll say is hunter. I believe in humans. I'm interested in each one of us making our way, having a chance to make something that's meaningful to us of this life, this one precious life. And so what I try to write about and speak about are the obstacles that get in the way of humans' being able to just be you know to thrive and so i'm i'm sitting here rooting for all of us you your listeners you know me my kids all of us i i just am rooting for all of us
0: yes yes thank you so much julie thank you thank you Thank you so much for listening. Don't you love Julie? She just says it like it is, which is what I love about her. That whole idea of, like, overparenting from that sense of love and also our ego, right? Like, we have to kind of get our own stuff out of our kids' accomplishments and and put ourselves not in the sidelines anymore of our own lives. Like, the importance of that, it really is really underlined, I think, by this conversation. So I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And just want to let you know again that I do have one spot open for my one-on-one coaching work. And this is sort of the highest level of working with me because I don't have a lot of time and I dedicate a lot of time to my one-on-one coaching clients. We get to know each other intimately. And we get to transform your struggles into you living a life of peace and ease, feeling grounded. And I walk you through that and you do the work to go through that. It's really an exciting, exciting time and a big investment in your life and the life of your family. People always tell me, they're always like, oh, and my relationship with my partner has improved so much. It's always this kind of surprising outcome which is so cool so if you're interested in that if this is something that's calling to you do check it out at mindfulmamamentor.com slash coaching and you can apply for a complimentary 30-minute clarity session with me we'll get to know where you are and where you want to be and see if it's a good fit so other than that of course working away on my book and if you would like to support the book, support the podcast. If you get something out of this, it really makes a huge difference when you share it with your friends. If you'd like to take a a screenshot and share it with me on Instagram, or just share it on Facebook or Twitter, all those things really make a huge difference. And, you know, I feel like Julie, you know, people like Julie lithgott like these are teachers we want out in the world. Like we want to get these messages out and you can do a great part in doing that. And another great thing you can do for that is to leave a review on Stitcher or iTunes, iTunes or Apple Music or whatever store. And that makes a huge difference. And I haven't gotten any new reviews recently, so I'd love to get a new review. I'd be happy to read it and acknowledge you for doing that. So that makes a big difference, and that's uh, a great way to support the podcast. And I hope that you are making it through the summer. You know, it's interesting. I was talking to my coaching clients last night about this in summertime. We get this kind of like, and, you know, heads up to you if you're in the future, or, or kudos to you in the, if you're in the future, or on the other side of the hemisphere, I get it. It's maybe not summer to you, but there's always these times in our life where there's, there's more chaos, and it feels a little little crazy and wonky, especially if you've got young kids in the house. And what we kind of want to do in those times is like control it more. Like we want to make everyone do just what we want them to do so that we feel better. <laughs> and sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes this instinct to sort of control more is this, come, is this place of fear, right? It's this ego wanting to sort of control more like we do with our kids, like we talked about with Julie. And sometimes... Is really more when some chaos is hitting. Sometimes a time to do less, and to just back off, and to not fight life. Right to say this is what is right now, and to to just ground in yourself. To like you know rather than kind of to to surf the waves. Right. So I invite you to go surfing this summer to relax and to surrender a little bit to what is happening and and let it be as it is. That can be really freeing for us and it can actually provide some of the space and release some of the tension in relationships to make things feel better in that moment. So anyway, I wish you a happy surfing the waves kind of summer and I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you next week. Namaste. Are you a mom who wants to feel less stressed and enjoy motherhood more? Do you want to be calmer with your kids and be more present for all of your life? I'm a mom who has gone from really being stressed and yelling when my kids were young to having a more grounded, more at ease relationship with life and having more enjoyable cooperative relationships with my kids and I've shown hundreds and thousands of women around the world how to do this and I wanna show you how to do it too. So if you are currently feeling stuck or stagnant, this is definitely for you. I've created a free downloadable audible training, mindfulness for moms, the superpower you need, and it will show you how to respond rather than react, how to let go of stress and feel more grounded in seconds, how to Have a Smoother Day Today and Become More Present for Your Kids for a Lifetime. To get on on this audio training absolutely free, simply visit the website www.mindfulmomguide.com. No one
3: told us the truth about parenthood. Why?